We are looking at chapter 13 from 1 Kings as we come to the 11th installation of our series, the, uh, and it's called The Word of the Lord. We live in a voice-operated universe. With his voice, God created the universe. Let there be light, and there was. With his voice, Jesus calmed the storm. Be still. And with his voice, Jesus brought the dead to life. Lazarus, come out. Voices are the most powerful agents of action in the universe. Just try communicating when you've lost your voice and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The tech companies continue to invest billions of dollars into improving voice interfaces like Siri and Alexa or whatever Google ones it called, which doesn't have a name. They know that if they can make these voice interfaces actually work properly, then they'll improve the power and the values of their devices and will spend less time sending texts saying, oops, sorry, I didn't mean to say that, silly Siri, and away you go. But out of all of this, the most powerful voice is the voice of the Lord. When he speaks, creation obeys. And so if we really want to truly tap into the power of God, we will do everything we possibly can to hear his voice. See, the the word of the Lord is the way that God works in his world. And we hear his word by the power of his Holy Spirit as we read and hear the Bible read and taught. That is why we have so much Bible in church. Have you noticed it? We have scriptural prayers. We stand up and say the Bible together. We sit down and hear the Bible read to us. We, we have songs that are biblical. And, of course, we spend a whole lot of time in the question time and especially in the sermon. Why? Because that's how God does his stuff. By his word, he rules the world And by his word, he relates to us. And so that's why we fill up our gatherings with his voice. In today's chapter from 1 Kings, we see the power of the word of the Lord. We see what happens when the Lord speaks commands and we witness how his powerful word works. It's a particularly interesting chapter because it's about this guy with no name called the man of God from Judah. And there's also another bloke who's known as the old prophet from Bethel. Both of them are kind of mysterious and they act in a mysterious kind of way. And as we, it's kind of interesting because as we've spent all this time going through 1 Kings, it's been a fairly sweeping history. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. And then we get to chapter 13 and it seems to slow right down as we just look at the story of these two blokes and the king. It slows right down. And I think as we are reading through 1 Kings, that's, that's something that's been given to us to make us have a bit of a breather and to sort of, in this halfway mark, reflect upon what's happened, but in particular what's going to happen in the future. And in all of this, we will see the power of the Word of God. We'll see the power of the Word of God and we'll see the right response to the Word of God, which is very important. But especially, we will see just what the true king should do when they hear the word of God as we meet a bloke who didn't. The previous chapter ended with the kingdom totally divided. King Jeroboam ruled the ten tribes of the northern kingdom with his capital in Shechem. And then King Rehoboam ruled the two tribes of the southern kingdom with the capital in Jerusalem. 
And you'll remember from last week, because King Jeroboam up in the north with the ten tribes up there, he was a bit nervous, a bit insecure. He didn't want his people going back to Jerusalem and, and maybe turning back to where they were. So he was keen to set up everything they need on his side of the border, including places to worship God. And he didn't just sort of create one temple, he created two. There was Dan and then there was Bathsheba. Sorry, um, uh, what was it called? Bethel, thank you. I'm thinking of Beersheba and Edward. Thank you very much. Bethel. And Bethel is where the action is today. With all of this, it's a huge mess. It's a huge mess because we've got the, the split in God's people. And now we've got Jeroboam worshipping at one of his false altars. And that, with that context, we hear the command of the word of the Lord. At the Lord's command, a man of God from Judah went to Bethel. Arriving there just as Jeroboam was approaching the altar to burn incense. So what happens? God tells this guy, the man of God, to go from Judah, down the bottom, Jerusalem bit, up to Bethel. The man of God goes from Judah to Bethel. Judah's the tribe that's got Jerusalem in it. So he's from the south. He's able to plug into the real temple where God really is. And he goes from there, across the border, into the north where they've got all the fake altars. And as he gets there, King Jeroboam has turned up to burn incense. It's pretty convenient, isn't it? It's not that it's a, there's a bad smell there, but it's, he's doing that because it's a way of worshipping God. It was sort of a ritual that God gave them, but in his funny way. The new fake altar is completely operational, and the king's getting into the worship action. And as he's doing this... This random man of God from Judah turns up. And the word of the Lord, which is the Lord's command, leads this man of God of Judah to shout. And so he says, O altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. What we have here is the prophet from Judah shouting out a prophecy, which is interesting. He uses the standard, thus says the Lord, although we've got a bit more of a modern translation. It's a kind of a formula that says, buckle up, God's about to talk, and here it comes, kids. And his prophecy is what you'd expect to hear from a prophecy. It's a word about a future event that's going to happen. And so we see in the second half of verse 2, he says, A child named Josiah will be born into the dynasty of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests from the pagan shrines who come here to burn incense and human bones will be burned on you. Who's the you? The altar. He's talking to the stone. And he's saying, the stone altar, you will have on you the sacrifice of the priests and a whole bunch of dead bones. He's talking about Josiah. Josiah is the guy who was going to be king down the track and he's part of the house of David. And that's good news, isn't it? The house of David. And Josiah was going to be a Messiah. He's going to do something that will bring judgment to this fake altar that is doing fake worship. And in fact, the priests themselves will be sacrificed, killed on that very altar that they used to sacrifice to the fake God. And the altar will be desecrated. It'll be polluted. That'll have human bones on it. Kind of like they, they tip a box full of bones onto the altar, which is... The worst thing in the world you can do for an altar that needs to be all clean and holy. But that's what they'll do. The altar will be polluted and then destroyed. It's a pretty full-on message, isn't it? It's a big shouty word from the Lord against the altar of this fake religion. 
And then verse 3, we read that that same day, the man of God gave a sign to prove his message. He said, the Lord has promised to give this sign. This altar will split apart and its ashes will be pulled out on the ground. The time will come when the altar will be destroyed, which will be a sign that the prophecy is true. And then the prophecy ends as the shouty man of God from Judah finishes his message. I wonder how you'd feel if you were there as the king was coming up to worship. A little bit kind of like we're here, we're sitting at the sermon, and then out of the blue, uh, Matt Bartlett stands up and starts shouting, Lord's table, Lord's table, or pulpit, pulpit, or piano, or something like that. And, and out it comes, and you'd be like, oh, that's pretty intense. A time will come, and it'll crack open in half. It's like, what, what's this guy doing? Get him out, get him out, get him out, settle him down. And that's exactly what King Jeroboam does. He hears the man of God speak against the altar at Bethel, and he pointed at him. He said, seize that man. Security, security. He wants the king, the king orders the prophet to be seized. The king didn't realize it was the word of the Lord, or if he didn't know that it was the word of the Lord, he didn't want the word of the Lord, and so he wants this guy out of here. It's give me good news, not bad news. He didn't accept the word of the Lord, and so he attacked the messenger. Is that something that's never happened again? Not really. Keeps happening to this day. You talk about Jesus, and you'll get attacked. Don't be surprised. Like, where did that come from? I never saw that coming. No, it's a thing. When we speak about things that are against the idols of this land, people won't like that. You want to really annoy someone? Attack their idols. Trust me, it will work 100% of the time. Speak out about wealth in our society. Speak out about sexual immorality. Speak out about these kind of things. You'll get attacked. Don't worry about it. And what's more, the message of repentance is one of the most jarring messages that we can say. Nobody wants to be told that they're wrong. Unless someone tells you that you're doing the wrong thing and you trust them and you know that it's leading to your harm. So if you see a big warning sign that says, prepare to stop, bridge closed ahead, you're thinking, I'm happy to be told about that message, to repent, to, to stop and do a handbrake turn and turn back. I'm happy about that. I don't really want to be screaming along at 80 k's and then go over the bridge. But a repentance that saves people from hell, that says turn away from hell, uh, doesn't get a lot of good press. Just ask Izzy Falau. Speak that way and the messenger will be attacked. Now I've got to say to you right now, Chances are that maybe someone in this room or watching a live stream, maybe you've just never got to the point where you've repented to God yet. Where you've never actually said, hang on, I've got to come to the point where I'll stop leading my own life and I'll follow him. And I'll stop living the life I was and I'll say sorry and I'll follow you, Jesus. If you haven't done that yet, this is the most important thing you'll ever do. It's the greatest message you'll ever hear. So just do it. Stop where you were going and turn to Jesus. Repentance is the most important thing you can do. But not all people love that message. King Rehoboam, as he's pointing, sees that man, what happens? For B, instantly the king's hand became paralysed in that position and he couldn't pull it back. It's a bit weird. It's like, ah, can't pull it back. And it's there. 
the king's hand become paralysed. I might just stop acting like that for a moment. It's looking a bit silly. But you get the idea. He's realising his hand's gone rock solid. Something's happened. He cannot move it. And it's stressing him out a bit. Clearly, something supernatural has happened. He's rejected the prophet. He's rejected the prophecy. But now his hand has turned to stone like this as he's pointing. And as predicted, there was this word about the altar cracking. Although it may well be way down in later that this verse actually is set, maybe later on in history. But whatever, we see here that a wide crack appeared in the altar, ashes poured out, just as the man of God had predicted in the message from the Lord. But the king remained with his hand like stone. And so verse 6b, the king cried out to the man of God, please ask the Lord your God to restore my hand again. Oh, really? We've now got your interest, have we? And who does he call out to? He says, the Lord, Yahweh, your God. Would you please get him to fix my hand up? I don't really like it. He cries out to God for mercy, for mercy. Can you see the irony? He said, oh, I don't want anything to do with that Lord you're talking about. Oh, by the way, would you mind putting in a good word for me? Because I'm, I'm finding this a bit awkward with my hand sort of like this. He didn't say sorry, though. He didn't say, well, probably this northern altar thing was a bit of a bad move. Maybe we should have worked out a way to get the the gang down to Jerusalem for the real temple. He didn't do any of that. No repentance. Just a cry for healing. Like so many people, they want the blessings from God, but they don't want God. That's what he wanted. What do you reckon the man of God from Judah is going to do? Is he going to say, oh, real, buddy? Is Is that so, buddy? Well, really, you should... If you really want the blessing, you've got to turn to Jesus, or you know, turn to turn the, to the Lord. But no, look at this: the man of God prayed to the Lord, and the king's hand was restored, and he could move it again. Oh, thank you! It's a miracle. The king's hand was healed. If you wanted to have proof that this guy was a prophet, and you're the king Jeroboam, and you're you're making all this noise about how none of what he says is true, surely at that point. He personally, with that miracle happening to him, would go, this is the real deal. This guy's the real deal. What he says is the real deal. He's impressed in some sort of way. And so he says in verse 7, come round to my place for a tea. He says, come to the palace with me, come to the house with me and have something to eat and I'll give you a gift. That's a nice thing to say, isn't it? You get the feeling, though, that there's possibly more to this hospitality than it seems this king didn't actually repent of his his false worship he didn't say look i'm really sorry about that whole golden calf thing um let's just pretend that never happened and we'll move on from there no not at all it's like he tried to paper over the cracks in the relationship with a nice meal and a nice gift what do you reckon the prophet's going to do oh that'd be lovely yeah feeling a bit famished what's what's on the what's on for tea Verse 8, the man of God said to the king, even if you gave me half of everything you own, I would not go with you. I would not eat or drink anything in this place. If a Christian friend invites you around for dinner and you're a bit busy, just say 1 Kings 13, 8. You try that. (laughs) Don't do that. Uh, But we hear he clearly says, no, I don't want your food. I don't want your prezies. I don't want anything. But why? Verse 9, for the Lord gave me this command. 
says the prophet. You must not eat or drink anything while you're there and don't return to Judah by the same way you came. Basically, he's saying, don't accept hospitality when you're in there. Just go straight in, give him the message, don't hang around, have a meal with him and go home, but make sure it's a different way back. Why is it that he would have nothing to do with the king from the north? Well, let me read to you a nerdy quote from Karl Barth in John Woodhouse's commentary. I kind of liked it. These are some big words, but I think it really nails it. He says here, What Jeroboam would like is reconciliation, tolerance, amicable compromise between himself and the divinely commissioned bearer of the word from Judah. For his own part, he sees no reason why they could not shake hands or why Jerusalem and Bethel could not settle down alongside one another. It's precisely that, he says. That is precisely that which the man of God refuses to concede by refusing the invitation. See, a lot of the time people just want to agree to disagree these days. Have you heard that thing before? People say, listen, you've got your view, I've got my view, they're different, let's just sort of hang out and everything will be okay. Now, there are times when that is a good idea, when it's not a really big issue. But the point is, you can't, do that over matters that really, really matter. And that's what we see here with the man of God. He knew that it's not kind of like, well, you do your worship your way and I'll do my worship my way and you can do your Bethel thing, I'll do my Jerusalem thing and we'll just sort of pop into each other at Christmas time. Really? No. The king had to either keep the altar or stop the altar worship. That's the decision. And if the king won't destroy the altar, the man of God would have nothing to do with him. That is the constant temptation that we as Christians have when we engage with others, whether they are Christians or whether they are people in the world. Uh, We seem to be talking about this quite a bit in question time and other things, but we see that with the dramatically different views about human sexuality. You see, some people say that the Bible sees same-sex marriage as sinful. And others say that it's sinful not to let people live out their desires. It's a completely different view of the same Bible. Now, how do we react to that? Some would have us say, well, let's just agree to differ on this. You have your view, I'll have my view, and we'll just get on fine and don't talk about it too much. But the problem is that if we have a view that disregards what the Word of God says, then we end up disagreeing with what God really says and we must stand for the truth even when it breaks unity it requires great wisdom to work out what are those issues that we will that we will not compromise on and this friends is one of those we need to be like the man of God from Judah who would not eat a meal or accept gifts from a man who did not believe that the Lord of Jerusalem was the one and only true God I know of ministers around the world, and particularly in developing nations, who get these massive scholarships from America and these trips to the Holy Land and to go and study and things like that, provided they sign up with their liberal views. There's no difference there. It's very costly to say, no thanks, I'll stick with what the Bible says. Don't you want to see the Holy Land? Well, I I wouldn't mind, but not at that cost, thanks. So with this, the man returns to Judah a different way. Verse 10, we read that he left Bethel and went home another way. He couldn't go back the same way 
It had to be a radical departure. And so he returns home. And as he returns home, he bumps into another prophet, or at least the family of that prophet. They'd heard about what had happened. And our story will speed up a little bit here, at least our, our focus on it. We read in verse 11 that as it happened, there was an old prophet living in Bethel. And his sons came home and told him what the man of God had said in Bethel that day. They also told their father what the man had said to the king. The old prophet, so it's not the same guy from Judah, it's the guy from the north. The old prophet asked them, which way did he go? And so they showed their father which road the man of God had taken. And he said, quick, saddle the donkey. And so they saddled the donkey for him and he mounted it. We don't know who this old prophet is. We know he's from Bethel, though, which is up north. Maybe he originally used to worship the Lord in Jerusalem and now he's up there and he's kind of drifted away. I mean, his sons were up there involved in the worship at that altar. He's probably gone bad. He's probably gone across to the dark side. But whatever the case, this old prophet from Bethel really wants to meet the man of God from Judah. One prophet, another prophet, they want to meet up. One from the north, one from the south. What's going to happen? Verse 14. Then this prophet rode after the man of God and found him sitting under a great tree. The old prophet from Bethel asked him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? Yes, I am. So this prophet from the north, from Bethel, meets the Judah prophet from the south, and he does the same thing, funnily enough. He says, Well then, come home with me and eat some food. I don't know if he's been talking to the king, say, oh, yeah, yeah, try asking him over for dinner and see what happens. Oh, no, maybe not. What do you think he's going to do this time? Oh, okay, no, all right, second time I was waiting for the second offer. No, verse 16, no, I can't, he said. I'm not allowed to eat or drink anything here in this place. For the Lord God gave me this command, you must not eat or drink anything while you're there and and do not return to Judah by the same way you came. The man of God, again, refuses hospitality. He refuses hospitality from the old prophet. He says, I've been told the word of the Lord and I'm going to believe it. I won't take that offer. I'm not going to eat with the prophet of the king from the north because to do so says, I love your stuff, I love your altar, I love what you're doing there. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, buckle up because there's about to be a twist. But the old prophet answered, Ah, I'm a prophet too, just as you are. And an angel gave me this command from the Lord. Bring him home with you so he can have something to eat and drink. Ah, the the new prophet from down south who said, Don't eat with them. He catches up with him and the guy says, Actually, I've got a new revelation from an angel. Trust me. What's he going to do? Why would he give him that message? How would he have a different message? Well, we don't have to guess much because the second half of the verse says, but the old man was lying to him. Right. Okay. That's why the message is different. That's why there's one voice, word from the Lord, and another word from the Lord. Rightio. What's this man from Judah going to do? Is he going to say, oh, the old, I heard an angel trick. Yeah, I've seen that one before, thanks. Well, no. So they went back together and the man of God ate and drank at the prophet's home. Ooh, okay, this might turn ugly because the man of God believes the lie and he eats with the prophet. 
Maybe he was thirsty and hungry. Quite a bit of a walk up there. He's been told don't have to eat and drink with anybody. And this guy, he thinks, oh, the next guy who asks me to come around to my place for a burger, I'm a, I'm a yes. Okay. Maybe it's that. But whatever it is, he was tempted. He was tempted and he ended up believing this lie. And it's easy to believe a lie, especially when it's a little lie or a good lie. Think of the lies that you've given into in your life. I can think of the lies that I've given into when I've heard the temptations. You think, oh, it won't really hurt. Just one sip, just one look, just one lie. It won't, oh, it won't hurt anybody else. Nobody will know. I mean, how many more lies do I need to share with you? Have you heard them all? I've heard them all. I believe them all. You know what I mean? This lie comes and this man from Judah believes it. And so they have dinner together and something happens. Well, verse 20, while they're sitting at the table, a command, a word from the Lord came to the old prophet now, the guy who's the fake, the liar. This old prophet now gets a genuine word from the Lord. And we re- he receives and he speaks the word of the Lord, this old prophet. And this is what the word of the Lord is. See if you'd expect this. He cried out, the old guy, he cried out to the man of God from Judah, this is what the Lord says, you have defied the word of the Lord and have disobeyed the command the Lord your God gave you. You came back to this place and ate and drank where he told you not to eat or drink. And because of this, your body will not be buried in the grave of your ancestors. Right. Okay. Uh, Thanks for that. Aren't you the guy who lied to me? Well, regardless... The word of God's judgment comes to him. And at that moment, it must have been just a little bit like Adam and Eve when they were said, oh, did God really say? And then they eat and suddenly they are naked and they, are, and they need to cover up, you know, and they are full of shame and they, they, they're scared of God and God did God. All that happens. You're thinking the same thing will be happening right here with this guy. And he's told that the judgment is that this man of Judah will basically die in exile. He's not going to go back to the grave side of where all the prophets go and stuff like that in Jerusalem. No, nah, out in exile. In so many ways, what we have here, and this is just a bit nerdy, but what we have here, I think, is a bit of a parable of the north and the south in these two men and the temptation of the north to bring in the south and the willingness of the south to believe a lie and the fact that the south ends up in exile. That's why this is really quite a a special chapter in the whole flow of 1 Kings and 2 Kings. But just keep that in mind. Then this happened, verse 23 and 25. After the man of God had finished eating and drinking, probably off his food by now, the old prophet saddled his own donkey for him and the man of God started off again. But as he was travelling along, a lion came out and killed him. His body lay there on the road with the donkey and the lion just standing beside it. People who passed by saw the body lying in the road and the lion standing beside it and they went and reported it in Bethel where the old prophet lived. A freak lion accident. And if you've seen those kind of documentaries where the lion gets into the animal, he doesn't sort of just play with it like a a cat does with a mouse. They, They usually will enjoy the meal. But that's not happening. I mean, if it was a normal situation... The man from Judah, he would have been eaten up and the donkey would be like, you're my main meal, mate. Whoop, 
off he goes. But no, they're just standing around. How's your day been? Oh, yeah, not too bad. How about you? Yeah, not so bad. Just standing around the body. It's weird. There's peace in the donkey. It's strange behavior. And the people tell the old prophet from Bethel. And this is what happens. Verse 26, when the prophet heard the report, he said, it's the man of God who disobeyed the Lord's command. Oh, no. The Lord has fulfilled his word by causing the lion to attack and kill him. So what do we have here? The bad prophet is alive. The good prophet is dead. Just doesn't seem right. Doesn't sit really well. It's kind of like you'd expect the other guy who lied to be sitting around on his front porch watching the sun go down and the lion comes out of nowhere. You'd expect that. And the other guy's like, well, I won't do that again. Sorry, I got food poisoning and gets on his donkey back to Judah. Doesn't happen that way. He dies. In a sense, he's an innocent man and he dies in fulfillment of the word of the Lord. We don't always understand why these sorts of things happen. We don't always understand why seemingly good people die. Wonderful Christian men and women die young of cancer or a car accident or some sort of crisis. And you think, that's not the way I'd script things if if I was running the, the universe. And a horrible person who has done horrible things lives to 102 and gets a letter from the Queen. And you're thinking, how does this work? But we trust that God is sovereign and gracious and that when terrible things like this happen, like the cross, we know that God is trustworthy. But it's hard to understand, isn't it? Anyway, the old prophet from Bethel, who lied originally, he now finds the body of the dead prophet and again we're told what the lion and the donkey again, just in case we missed it the first time. Because he says, Then the prophet said to his sons, Saddle a donkey for me. So they saddled a donkey and he went out and he found the body lying in the road and the donkey and the lion were still standing there beside it for the lion had not eaten the body nor attacked the donkey. We get it a second time. And the old lying prophet cries out in grief. Hear these words. You can hear the emotions. He says, we see the, the prophet laid the body of the man of God on the donkey and he took the body back to the town, all the people of the town, to mourn over him and bury him. He laid the body in his own grave, crying out in grief, Oh, my brother. It's high drama, isn't it? Something has happened between the old prophet who was the liar and the younger prophet who'd come up from Judah. So much so that there's now this point where the the guy who had been with the bad altar has somehow come to now be brother, almost brother in Christ, brother in the Lord, with the man who has now died. You see, what has happened is this guy who's died obeyed the word of the Lord and he, he called out, the evil. He said, this altar is evil. And in the end, he died because of a religious person who claimed to represent God. In a way, the death of the innocent man brought repentance. Can you see that? The death of that innocent man brought about a whole lot of people to say, we're a bit unhappy with this altar, to be honest. And the prophet from the north now comes to the tomb of the innocent man from Judah and wants to be buried with him. This is even interesting. More interesting. Afterward, the prophet said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave where the man of God's buried. 
lay my bones beside his bones. He wants to be connected with the guy from Judah, even though he's on the other side of the, of the border. He wants to be with him. And why? Verse 32, For the message of the Lord told him to proclaim against the altar in Bethel and against the pagan shrines in the towns of Samaria will certainly come true. He says, I know that what he said about how that altar will be destroyed will come true because it was with the word of the Lord and I believe in the word of the Lord and so I'm on the side of the guy who got it in the neck by the lion. I'm with him. I want to associate myself with the prophet from Judah, from the man of God from Judah. He knows the destruction's coming upon the false religions and so he runs away from them. And so now this, this man of God is united with the prophet from old and, they are, and he calls him my brother. What about King Jeroboam? Do you reckon he's going to say, well, I might do the same? Well, apparently not. Even after this, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil ways. Even after this, he continued to choose priests from the common people. He appointed anyone who wanted to become a priest for the pagan shrines. And this became a great sin and resulted in the utter destruction of dynasty from the face of the earth. Utter destruction of Jeroboam's dynasty. I think that's a no. He continued to lead his people away from the truth and to follow the false religion. Even though... He saw this man do this miracle to his hand with a word. He was there. He reminds me of those people who saw Jesus withered hand. Take it out. It's no longer withered. You say, oh, you shouldn't do that on the Sabbath. It's really? You know what I mean? He saw it. Jeroboam got it in his eye. And yet he still says, nah. Can you see the impact of the word of the Lord in this story? The word of the Lord brought the man of Judah up to the king of Jeroboam, up to the altar, to bring him to repentance. And yet even though the king enjoyed the healing of his hand, he didn't repent of his idolatry. He wanted the blessings, but he didn't want to turn back. And the word of the Lord brought the old prophet to repentance as he witnessed the innocent death of the man of God from Judah. And many people repented of their sin. Friends, the word of God is still powerful today. That shouldn't be a surprise. (laughs) But it was powerful back then. It is powerful today. And that's why we've got the word of God everywhere in this church. For as we read in Hebrews 4, the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes and he is the one to whom we are accountable. That's what the Lord of God does. It's like an x-ray, like a scalpel. And so the Apostle Paul tells his servant Timothy, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom. Here's what he says. Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time's favourable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke and encourage your people with good teaching. And may we do the same as well.